Hello everyone, hello my peace lovers and peacemakers friend. We are broadcasting from Seattle area, the very west part of our nation. I think everyone knows that what's happening right now, what's happening in this area in, in the west. So millions of millions of square feet of our forests are burning. We are dealing with wildfire a very large, big, disastrous wildfire. Okay, so um, the reason that it's very, very important for us, for me personally and for my family, is because right now we have a breathing problem. Every time that I look at my weather channel to see what's happening and what is the air and what we are dealing with, on the top of the screen says very unhealthy air condition or air quality. And that is very uh, problematic right now because I live in a neighborhood where we have roughly around 24, 25 houses. In each house, there are about one to four or five kids. The kids range between eight or nine months to 16 years. Most of the kids are between seven-ish to 10-ish. And during the summertime and also during the, um, right now, I mean, after school, we started our school here. So after school, kids were out with mask and with, you know, as much as they can manage uh, within their own uh, worldly kid uh, to, to, to stay away. So they were just playing. They were playing. The, uh, the streets were uh, crowded and, and I was happy to hearing the, the giggling the sound of plays and it, it was a happy happy place up until about about seven days ago basically right now there is no one out no one we do not go out eyes are burning breathing is difficult and with this notion of breathing is difficult brought me to the notion that we've been dealing with not long ago a man cried cried I cannot breathe a few months ago and it was because of disastrous causes that created before him that that caused that brutal accident and I believe that the this we have created such a disaster that caused us to to live within this environment right now and then I was thinking so yes, all of these are happening, all of this, but, but the matter is, how are we telling any of those stories? How do we frame? How do we frame stories? How do we say the stories? For whom are we creating the stories? Who are the gatekeepers? With, from which angle are we look, looking at the stories? In what way we are saying or we are telling the stories? So storytelling is important phenomenon. Here, we are going to talk about ways in which stories has been told to us from a very particular angles in a way that make us believe of what the story is being told is true. And we are going to look at from a larger perspective. 
And for that matter, for the matter of storytelling, for the matter of who says the story in what way, I cannot think about better person than Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth Lesser. Elizabeth Lesser is the author of many best-selling books, including her latest book. I do have the book with me. So it's Cassandra Speaks. When women are storytellers, the human story changes. Actually, I am so delighted and honestly so delighted, so honored to have Elizabeth with us today because today is actually the day that the book goes in the market. So hello, Elizabeth. Hello. Oh, that was that was a beautiful way you framed the, the wildfire flyers. That was just very hadn't heard that and it really hit home you saying like you know i can't breathe how those are related to each other that was beautiful thank you for having me yes it's it's a delight it's a delight thank you elizabeth elizabeth is the founder of omega institute the organization organizes workshops and conferences in wellness spirituality creativity and social changes she has appeared in opera winfrey's show as one of the super soul hundred as one of the leaders using her voice to elevate humanity okay elizabeth i just want to know what are the ways in which we frame a subject to, to tell the story? How, how do we do that? And in your book, you're specifically talking about women and how for women has shaped to just control the public opinion, I would say, or control the uh, storytelling. But how do we do that? Well, let me start not by talking about women, if that's okay. Um, because we were watching in, in our country, in the United States, and I know there are some people watching, listening who are not in the United States, but I'm gonna talk about this country. We are witnessing a storyline being questioned and dismantled right now in America. And that's the story of white supremacy. So, I'm bringing this example up because it's right in our life right now, and it's something we can really understand. And then I'll talk about the, the, the subject matter of the book. But in order for there to have been enslaved people in this country several hundred years ago, we had to tell a story of white supremacy. How else could you take people from their homeland, away from their family, and put them in inhumane situations and bring them here and torture them into working and building the country and then never giving them credit for their participation in creating our country. How else could you do that if you weren't telling a story that said one race was better than another? You couldn't dominate another race if you weren't telling that story. So that story is deep in the DNA of America and it's deep in people's stories, stories stick to us. They stick to us more than anything. We still live by ancient stories, stories from the Bible. Why, why, Elizabeth? What's the power of storytelling that stick to us? It's the way humans learn. I often like to think about the first humans sitting around a fire, trying to figure out. What are we doing here? Where are we? What are the stars? 
What is water? What, who are you? How do we live this life? And, and they would tell stories in order to make sense because we live in such a mysterious universe. We don't know what's going on. So we tell stories about it. That's what mythology is. That's what religious parables are. It's the way humans learn. We love stories or we wouldn't love books and movies. We tell stories. We watch them. It is what humans love. It's how we learn. But in this discourse, women have suffered through the line of storytelling. Yeah. And, you know, some of us might think we're so modern and sophisticated. We don't necessarily believe literally some of these stories that live in the DNA of our culture. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you even don't know the story they inform and have informed for thousands of years what we think about what it means to be human it's and our value systems so let's take for instance the first story in our abrahamic tradition of the bible the old testament the new testament the quran the old story of adam and eve um, you may think, well, it doesn't really affect me, but it does. The very first woman was born second, second in creation, and first to sin. That's the storyline that haunts us. Everything was great in the Garden of Eden, and then Adam needed a helpmate, so God made woman, and woman was the first to disobey. She was curious. She wanted to grow. She wanted wisdom. The snake, who, by the way, in ancient days, in ancient stories, the snake was the bearer of wisdom. The snake was not seen as evil. But as that story has been interpreted over the years, the woman followed the direction of an evil spirit and disobeyed God and brought ruination, illness, sickness, and even death unto innocent men. And that sticks to us and who we think we are. Yes, uh, I'm glad that you are not leaving us in the limbo. And you're also talking about some of the solutions. But but here is uh, here is my question. Maybe it's just naive or it's ju I ju I'm just curious to know. Here is here's my take. Women hold a tremendous amount of power in one particular area, and that area is reproduction. At least in my opinion, there is no art, no creation, nothing can compare against burning a child. And I, I just can't help to think, Elizabeth, I just can't help to think that, okay, so men were extremely jealous. <laughs> and then they decided we're just going to go after this other, other gender and we're just going to show them their place, blah, blah, whatever. Or they're just vehemently jealous. Yeah. Well, you know, I was a midwife. That was my first job in life. So for 10 years, I delivered babies. So... I'm with you. I'm an enormous fan of the power of women. I've sat very close to hundreds of women doing the most powerful, painful, heroic journey you could think of doing. So 
there's many reasons why men wanted to control reproduction, not only because they're jealous, and I do agree with you, but all sorts of biological reasons where uh, a man wanted to have as many children, wanted to make sure that the children were his. That is why so much of the control of women's sexuality happened from a, from a biological point of view. There's so many streams that come into this. There's biology, there's culture, there's nurture, there's nature. There's, you know, some people say, well, not all women are the same. Not all women are like this or that, but most women have within us this power, not only to bear children, but we have a capacity in us to care for children and to care for elders. There's something about women, and I don't believe it's only because we've had to hold these jobs. I think it's something in nature about women that moves into care. You know, the whole idea of um, fight or flight syndrome. Now they're saying in biology that women have the tend and befriend, that our natural response to stress isn't as much fight or flight. It's more tend and befriend. So, duh, I have this idea. Why not put women in charge then if that is our response and we want peace? Hello? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to play devil's advocate. Wouldn't be fair to say that at least for the sake of balancing the power, uh, men put down women uh, to control the narrative. But in reality, did they really succeed and win in their argument, in their discourse? Well, yes and no. Mm -hmm. Let's take what you talked about when we got on, how the West is on fire and a lot of the earth is on fire. And we've had thousands of years of masculine leadership. Some of it's beautiful and wonderful. This isn't a zero sum game that men are all bad and women are all good at all. But there is a tendency in male leadership to dominate and we've dominated the earth. We've extracted everything from the earth. And the earth, Mother Earth, is crying and she's begging us for a different way of defining power, a way of working with each other, of kindness, of peace. And I do think that women, as power outsiders for all of these years, except in the realms where we have been so powerful, in the home, in the family, I think it's time for us to bring what we know out of those realms and into uh, the realms where we can help save the planet and help bring peace. I think women have a capacity to be peacemakers with men, but there needs to be a deeper listening to women's wisdom and not just as mothers and homemakers. Yeah. For the sake of organizing our conversation, I'm going to focus on the first part of the book because the book has been um, organized in three parts and then we go to the solution. But for the first part, there are quotes after quotes and also saying after saying that um, women have been put down by male power. Tell me about, about the first part and tell me when you were writing this, were you, were you be upset 
angry, <laughs> outraged. So tell me, tell me, tell me, tell me about the first part of the book. Well, I wrote the book because I had spent many years. You introduced me as the co-founder of the Omega Institute, which is a conference and retreat center in the Hudson Valley in New York State. And uh, I've been involved with that organization for 40 years. And over all these years, I've created lots of conferences on all sorts of things from holistic health to parenting and, and all kinds of things that affect humans and culture. And one of the things I've always been interested in is women. And uh, about 15 years ago, I organized a, con a conference called Women and Power. I did it because when I put those two words together, women, power, it made people uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. I was a woman in leadership, but I was afraid of my own power within a mostly male-dominated organization. And I realized that uh, there were lots of women out there who were getting their foot into leadership positions, whether it's on a school board or in government or in a corporation or in an organization or even in a family. And they were finding that in order to be powerful, they had to become like the men they were working with. And it, it didn't feel comfortable. And so I asked the question to myself and then I created a conference series around it and it went on for many years. Is there a way to do power differently? Could we lead in a different way that was more inclusive, that was less power over and more power with? Is there a way to do that? And I invited women leaders from every kind of sector, a woman astronaut, women in, in governmental situations. And over the years, it became very popular. And I brought women presidents in and women Nobel Peace Prize winners. And we all discussed this conversation about women in power. And I wrote a keynote speech every year, and it became the basis for this book. So did it come from a place of anger? Sometimes. Anger isn't bad. Sometimes anger is justified. But it also came from a place of hope and love and desire for men and women to balance the scales of thousands of years that's been so out of balance. Tell me about the keynote. I, I'm curious to know what was in the keynote and uh, what was the your rules of running the conference? Um, well, the keynote I gave was different every year. One mm -hmm. of them was actually about the Greek god, goddess Cassandra, which is why I ended up calling the book Cassandra Speaks. And I'm happy to tell you that story if you would like. Um, how did I run the conference? That's such a good question because I got the opportunity to see both how women do lead differently, but also how sometimes we don't. And I failed a lot in my desire to be a different kind of leader. I would get angry when people weren't doing things my way. I would find myself wanting to do exactly the things I was talking about not doing. So it taught me, and I write about this a lot in the book, we have to look at our shadows as women. We can't just assume that power won't corrupt us. Power is very corrupting. So it's not an easy answer, but I do think that 
women have an opportunity since we have been locked out of power for so long to look at ourselves honestly and say, can we do this differently? Can we be peacemakers while being in authority? Can we? Yes, we can. <laughs> Excellent. So when we come back, I'm going to ask three questions. Who is Cassandra? And then Martin and I have, uh, she she started a book club. And then we were just uh, reading for owning your own shadow. And then you're talking about shadow. I'm going to ask about shadow. And I'm going to ask about um, how, in, in what constructive, effective way women can reshape the discussion over power. Okay, stay put, please. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We are live streaming our show on many social media channels on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, many, many channels. It's very easy to find us. So there is a chance that you're also watching Peace Mindedly. What happens is every week uh, we come back every Tuesday. We come here at 12 noon. Pacific Standard Time. It's going to be 3 p.m. in New York. It's going to be 11 p.m. in Dubai and 8 p.m. in London. There are many of the places that we do have a stronghold. To, to hold this conversation, we are featuring amazing authors who've been studying or dedicating the body of their work in peace and peace building and peacemaking. For this hour, we are talking with Elizabeth Lesser, the author of Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are Storytellers, The Human Story Changes. Elizabeth studied literature in college, received a teacher degree from San Francisco State University and an honorary doctorate from the Institute of Transpersonal Psychology in Palo Alto in California. Elizabeth is a spiritual leader and she has studied spirituality with teachers, healers, psychologists, philosophers, and in many different traditions, including Sufism. Sufism is a mystic approach to Islamic teachings. Currently, she lends her time to social and environmental causes. She is an avid walker, cook, grand gardener, friend, mother, grandmother, and homebody. I I just love the way that she, she describes herself. She lives in New York, Hudson River Valley with her husband. And speaking of which, so Elizabeth, first of all, tell me who is Cassandra? Cassandra was in Greek mythology. So she's not a real person. And this is, again, the, the power of storytelling. You look, you think of the Greek myths and Homer and Odysseus and all the stories so many of us had to read in high school and college. And you think they're you know, Pandora and Cassandra, and we think of them almost as real, but they're just stories some guys made up. So the story of Cassandra, she was a princess in Troy, parts of Greece, and she was the most beautiful princess, and everyone wanted her. Everyone was trying to woo her, mortals and gods, even even the god Zeus and even his son Apollo. And Apollo was the one who won out because he promised her a gift. He said, I will make you clairvoyant. I will make you be able to see into the future and tell the future. And you will be the one we listen to because you can see into the future. And Cassandra wanted that. Who wouldn't want that? And after she accepted the gift, he tried 
to have sex with her and she refused him and he became enraged and she didn't know that was part of the bargain so instead of just taking the gift back he said you know what i'm going to curse you you will see into the future you will know what's going to happen but no one will believe you people will think you're exaggerating and making it up so that was cassandra's lot she did see into the future she saw what would happen in the trojan war she tried to warn people against going to war all of her brothers were killed she saw that she told them she told people everything that would befall the country but no one listened and eventually she went mad from it and i related to that story and especially as i was writing the book the whole me too movement was happening here so many women saying this happened to me this was my experience but no one believing them so many times we're we're told as women to be quiet to be good not to say things that are going to make a problem and and so we withhold our own truths and i called the book cassandra speaks when women are the storytellers the human story changes because i do believe had women been involved in telling the greek myths in telling the bible stories we would have told a different storyline cassandra's story she would have been the hero she would have been trying to make peace no one would have listened and perhaps the brave new ending would have been and then they finally did listen to her she knew what war would bring and so humankind stopped waging war but no mm -hmm. so you just gave us one example of me too movement but uh, when women are storytellers so can you give us uh, one or two more examples of how story changes how how storyline changes how the storyline could change had could change changed. yeah maybe yeah yeah, well, let's let's can I stick with the me too story? Yes. Yes. Um when they ask how many women have had experiences of either sexual abuse or just deeply uncomfortable situations where our lives are compromised, our jobs are compromised, more than 50% of women say me too. They may not say it out loud because still there's a stigma with saying it and a fear that you'll lose your job, you'll lose your support, your parents won't support you, your husband will be humiliated. Uh, and then some other cultures and countries, you say you've been raped and you're killed or your family is. So this is an example of a story being in the human culture, not just the West, everywhere, that women should not tell the truth because it, it's either not believed or it's just bothersome and it's just gonna upset everyone, so stay quiet. That story is in us women, it's in men. Men feel a sense of, no, please, women talk too much. That's a fa favorite line, women just talk too much. So how does that story affect us? I mean, it goes all the way back to Eve who disobeyed it goes to some like Cassandra Pandora's box. She disobeyed, and because she did, all the evils were unleashed. So, for us to undo that story, like the story of white supremacy, let's say, to undo that story, 
No, women should say our experience. We should be listened to. Not if we're not telling the truth, but at least you would, we should be listened to. We have to undo the ancient story that there's something untrustworthy about women's voice. Yes, but women are saints. Women are not saints. And we do make mistakes. In the book, you are talking about owning your shadow. What do you mean? Well, you said it beautifully. Women are not saints. So it's not an easy or thing, either or thing that women will do power better. Like, and also the very stories that live in men that, that, that make them feel perhaps they're the superior gender, the story lives in us too. So we don't think we're good enough. That's one part of our shadows. We have to look at ourselves and get rid of this idea that we're either a saint, perfect, or there's something really wrong with us. No, we're humans. We make mistakes. We're just like men in that way. Sometimes good, sometimes not good. But the shadow I'm talking about in, in Cassandra Speaks is, and there's one, I'll give, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you an example because it's much better to learn through story. So I'll tell, I'll tell you a story from my own marriage. So, you know, us women now, we really want our men to be more sensitive and vulnerable. That's something that this generation of men, my husband's generations, maybe yours, and more so even younger people's, men are finally feeling, wow, I can be more sensitive. I can show my feelings. I, I don't have to always be strong. And, and like, that's been a prison for men. That hasn't been fun for men either. So, and women are always encouraging men, talk more, be more sensitive. But the deep story in me still is men should be strong and they should save me. So even as I'm trying to undo the old story, I'm still caught in it. And I'm asking men, my husband, be more sensitive. But when he is, it kind of scares me because I still want him to be the guy who saves me. That is what shadow work is all about. Being courageous enough to look at the places in your life where you're being hypocritical and not beating yourself up for it, but going, hmm, that's interesting. I don't want to be like that. How do I change this storyline within me? How can I work with my husband together to do this differently? Shadow work is about bravely looking at the places of yourself that you don't want to look at. I'd rather be a saint, but I'm not. I want, I, it's almost a prayer. For me, shadow work is a prayer. It's like, show me the places of myself that I also need to work on. Beautifully said. Elizabeth, when we are reading the book, how do we read the book? Tell me, tell me about the book itself. Well, as you said, I divided it into three parts. There's the old stories. And not just stories from the Bible or stories from the Greek myths, but also stories uh, from literature, stories from movies, just the different ways stories have affected us. The second part of the book is called The Story of Power. And it's all about dismantling the old texts about how to be a leader. So much of the old texts of leadership come from military. 
so much of leadership in business and everywhere is from war and military. And there are other ways, other images and storylines with which we can learn about power. And then the third part of the book is more of the how-to. And it's, you know, I've been um, an activist for a lot of my life, but I have also been what I call an innervist. I um, made that word up. And so an innervist, an activist works on, on trying to help the world. And an innervist says, how can I change myself so that I, I can actually be I can actually be the kind of person, you know, the way Gandhi talked about it, to be the change. How can I be the change within myself? I talk about peace, I talk about love, I talk about inclusion. How am I doing it really in myself? The book is gonna be, is gonna go public today. Yes, and then, and then, what is your plan? You said that you're going to a place to celebrate. I mean, this with this pandemic and it's going on. It's, it has been difficult for many authors to celebrate the, the, the hours and months and years of work that they've been put to, um, to present their books. But what is your plan for tonight? Well, tonight I'm um, going to be in conversation with Maria Shriver, who was the first lady of California for many years and is a journalist like you. I've known her for many years, so she's going to be interviewing me. That's through my organization, Omega Institute. And then it's really funny. See this little room I'm sitting in? This is my writing room. I'm just going to sit here for the next month and a half and go to bookstores <laughs> around the country. And it's really weird. Yes, yes. <laughs> honestly, honestly works for us as media media representatives because makes it easier for us. But I know that, you know, seeing people face to face in person is a different matter. Where can we find the book? You can find the book in stores that are open and also on all of the online. And, and you know, if you can buy it online through your independent bookseller, and most of them now have also pivoted to the online space, which is great. So seek out your local bookstore and see if you can buy it online from them. And if you can't, go to Amazon or whatever, because it's for sale there. Stay with me, Elizabeth. You are listening and watching to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. As Elizabeth said, the book is available today and it's very exciting today. You can uh, find the book in bookstores, you can find the book online, and you can find the book on our website, goldtune.com. We have affiliate program with Amazon. And then if you buy the book through us, we get a very small percentage of the book and it's it helps with our uh, peace journalism initiative a wealth of information available about elizabeth about her book and about uh, what she does so uh, you can find the book in many many places at the end of the program i ask my guests to close the program by sharing something meaningful about peace about kindness about compassion and i know that Elizabeth has a lot to share on this field and this regard. So, Elizabeth, uh, what do you want us to know about peace, kindness, compassion, and about women and women storytellers? 
as you said earlier, my spiritual tradition for most of my adult life is um, uh, Sufism. Um, I'm the, the student of a Sufi master named Pir Vilayat Inayat Khan. And I've studied uh, many Sufi works for most of my adult life. So I thought I would read something from the poet Rumi, who probably many of you know, and you might even know this poem, but it speaks to me about kindness in a way that actually we can do something about. It's not just being nice, because being nice often isn't the same as being kind. So let me read the poem, then I'll talk more about it. So Rumi says, out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. So even the phrase each other doesn't make any sense. When we know, truly know, how similar we are, that we are actually one, that we are so linked that we're just part of the fabric. When we are each other, kindness is the only option. Why would we be unkind to our brother or sister who is ourself? That's a hard thing to wrap the mind around. In fact, to me, that's what spirituality and mysticism is all about, experiencing the oneness of all of life. So trying to be kind often doesn't work, and it becomes kind of unnatural. But working to understand that out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there's a field. I'll meet you there, meaning that person's opinions, your opinions, when we get into our souls with each other, it doesn't matter. We're so far from that right now in our culture here in America. We're so divided. We're so not, we're so not seeing each other as one. So kindness is difficult. When you see someone as the other, as the enemy, Kindness doesn't seem like a good idea, but when, when I work in my small ways with my children, my grandchildren, my husband, my friends, to dissolve the boundaries of otherness, then kindness bubbles up as a natural response. Yes, I know that I said we, we close the program by sharing uh, the statement, but we have time and I didn't touch this question and I really want to know. So if you bear with me, you, you explained innervism. You're explaining it in your book, Innervism. So what do you mean by innervism? I mean, time-honored tools of how to experience your oneness with all. Meditation is an innervist tool. Sitting every day, feeling the nobility of your humanhood, breathing slowly, opening your heart, feeling what you feel, allowing yourself to be 
a human with all the other humans. To me, that's what meditation is about, quieting the crazy mind that finds differences all the time and resting in the beauty of life. That's an inner vis tool. Taking care of the body so that we're strong and healthy and able to serve and be part of, of making the world a better place. It's hard to do that when we're not well. So taking care of the body to me is, is a holy act. It's an innervist act. All sorts of different mystical traditions, meditation, prayer, reading, anything that connects you to your inner self, to your inner peace. You know, we would do for years at Omega Institute, we would bring peace activists to Omega to for free for them to hold their group meetings. And sometimes I would look at these people who were working for peace and I'd think, these are some of the most angry uptight people I've ever seen. And so we would begin to offer some of these peacemakers who were working in the trenches in war zones and places like that, ways to come home to their own peaceful heart. So their work for peace in the world comes from a sense of inner peace. I don't want to hijack the conversation, but do you think women are better in innervism than men? Um, or do no. they do they frame the question in a way that you answer? No, no. I, mean, I don't like the question of. Yeah, I know it's just a silly question, but no, it's yeah. not a silly question. It's not. But I think like there's different kinds of innervism. There's you know like there like a lot of religious traditions have been framed around practically a warriorship mentality, spiritual warriors. And I really think spirituality now has to be from the heart, has to be about coming into one's emotional intelligence. Let's, let's talk about grief for a moment. To me, grief is a spiritual tradition. If you shut down to how tragic the world is right now and don't fully feel it. You don't build compassion. And there's this strong sense, especially in Western culture, not to feel what we feel. Like you get a day off from work when your mother dies kind of thing. Whereas in the old traditions, you'd spend a year wearing black and you would cry and you would go with the women and you would all wail and weep. We need to do this right now, and we need to make that be what it means to be spiritual, to feel deeply, because when we do, we can feel into the other. Yes, in Iran and Arab and uh, Middle East tradition, this is exactly what we do. So when someone dies, it's uh, the first night, and then it's the third night, then it's the one week, then it's the uh, forty days, then it's one year, and then I would some sometime when I was a child, I was just asking my mom, "Mom, was just so silly. Why you are just keep going to that person and uh, probably promoting this anger and grief?" And my mom said, "No, no, no." that woman needs us or that man needs us and we just need to stay with this grief so then she or he doesn't feel she's all by herself and, and women I, I, honestly, are better at that and <laughs> women are better at that yeah it's, it, mm -hmm. and and we felt like well then women can do that they can do that over here no we need to do that everywhere that mm -hmm. needs to be part 
of what we do as a human kind now. Mm -hmm. The other thing that I wanted to mention here is I know that I'm just going back and forth between men and women. And I learned in the United States that it's just uh, fine line between men and women but at least in Quran I'm not saying Islamic tradition but in Quran that I read four or five times it's very distinct it's very distinct as one of the rules of humanity uh, that men and women are not mentioned in a way of okay so men are better than women women are better than men the only thing that has ever mentioned in Quran is the, the, the human, the person, the person, the better person among you is the one that who is doing a good deed and believes uh, believes in God wholeheartedly. And it was just a constant conversation during the, the prophet's time that, okay, so who is better and who is better, better among us or who is the leader and so forth and so on and has always been referred to the many verses in Quran that whoever does good, and and uh, feels whole, wholeheartedly closer to God, so that person is better. And honestly, it's not. It's not. It's not man or woman. It's not. I, it's I, just... I think it's the same in every mm -hmm. original text. It's not the texts that are the problem. It's the interpretation. So it's because the the holy people who from God spoke through were enlightened beings with big, wide open, gender-free hearts. But then the power structure took it and used it for what they wanted to do. So when I look at some of the rules, let's say in Islamic countries where women are not allowed to do X, Y, and Z, and then they say it's related to the Quran, I'm like, that's not the Quran I read. And it's the same with Christianity. And it's the same with Judaism. You know, and I quote a lot of the Jewish and Christian interpretations of texts in the book that are just so harsh on women, but that's not what Jesus was saying or the holy mystics from the Old Testament or the Quran. So it's just power hungry people get a hold of something and twist it for their own purposes and now we're right. twisting I don't know. We are, we are, and now we are twisting for to to just tell a better story okay elizabeth uh, any final thoughts really just that if the book were to do anything it would help women and men women and men to shake off the old stories of the past so that we can find our own true voice and speak from that voice so we can make the world, as you say, a better place. Yes, inshallah. So my sister was telling me why you are not showing the book. I want to see the book. My friends were saying why you are not showing the book. So here's the book. If I can show the book, uh, Cassandra Speaks, When Women Are Storytellers, Human Story Changes. You can find the book on uh, goldtoon.com, on bookstores today and, and many places. And I recommend the book. I, I read the book and I quite enjoyed. Martin is here with me. And thank you so much for listening and for uh, for commenting and joining the course. Thank you for a great discussion. And I enjoyed the book a lot. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Bye-bye.